Hi, my name is Bob Brooks, host and moderator of Long in the Tooth. This is a podcast primarily for late career dentists who are interested in doing a great job with their practices currently and also in planning for a transition of their practices to new ownership in the future. Our vision for the podcast is to be an educational format, not salesy at all. If you have been directed to join this podcast by a member of the dental industry in the United States, please thank them. This is going to benefit you. These are educational presentations that will hopefully help your profitability, your peace of mind, and your planning for the future as you are considering transitioning your practice to new ownership. Well, this is Bob Brooks with Long in the Tooth Podcast. We're happy to have you with us here today. And we're, we have a new guest, Brian Hanks. Brian is with Dental Buyer Advocates. Uh, he's an accountant and a financial advisor who works exclusively with dentists. He served the dental community at two dental accounting firms where he focused on newer dentist and transition. And he has extensive experience working with dental transitions, concentrating mainly on working with buyers of dental practices, as I just said. He frequently speaks on topics related to dental transitions, leadership, accounting, and investments. He resides in the Mountain West and works with dentists throughout the U.S. Brian, we're happy to have you with us today. I'm thrilled, Bob, because you and I are on different sides of the transition, right? You help sellers. I help buyers. Um, and, and a lot of folks joke with me, oh, you know, you must have a lot of brokers that don't like you. And I think what they assume is that it's a battle, right? These transitions are a battle between the lawyers, between the brokers and accountants, et cetera. And, and I joke and I, I joke right back and I say, no, 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 no. Like I have great relationships with the good brokers around the country. It's the bad brokers who don't like me. <laughs> so I, I think that says something about you and I and our relationship and the fact that we, uh, we both, you know, treat and ethics and dental transitions the same. And anyway, that's a long way for me to say, thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, well, we're pleased that you were able to join us, and thanks for taking time away from your busy schedule. I think, uh, you know, I've I've got a busy schedule. Things have really been ramping up around here lately, and uh, it's neat with all the blessings that we're receiving, but, you know, we like to keep on track with providing this educational information, so thanks for taking your time to participate today. I'm excited. Well, our first topic today is practice price trends around the country. So, Brian, what... What is the average price of practices nationwide? And that's the magic question, right? Every dentist wants to know how much is my practice worth? What's the average price? All of these things. You and I know that that is a dangerous question, but I do want to provide a very specific numerical answer to that question. And then I want to follow right up with that with some of the subtleties around that number, if you're game, of course. Sure. Let's yeah. go for it. All right. So it would be irresponsible of us as transitions professionals to say, well, it depends. And, you know, you know, tell us about your practice and, you know, because the data exists. Right. And, and now I've got, um, I'll tell you the answer. You asked me, what is the average price of a practice? I'm going to answer the question in terms of collections, a percentage of collections with, and again, I'm going to caveat a little bit and I'll give you the number, but the caveat is that is not the only way to value a practice. But the average practice value that I see in the data, and this is, um, 
you know, I, I have about 1,100 dental practices in my database that I've looked at in the last, oh, you know, just under a decade or so. Um, right now, in 2021, as we're recording this, is uh, in, in at least general dental practices, 76.83% of last year's collections. And that number wiggles a little bit based on specialty. Oral surgery, 75.79. Pedo, 78 Orthos at an 84.1, but that's because of the contracts receivable with ortho practices. If you back those out, they tend to be close to that 75, 76% number. And uh, anyway, so that that is the direct answer to your question. But I know, Bob, we're going to get into more details around that. I'm sure we will. And I'm looking forward to interacting with you on that. So uh, the... Um, one of the challenges of arriving at an average price of practices nationwide, of course, would be that all the specifics about practices are not shared. Has the practice been closed three months? Was it a patient record sale? Uh, is there a family member that works in the practice full-time that's not paid? Is there an associate in the practice with without a non-compete? Does the lease end next month? And I've identified over 100 variables that can affect that. So none of the variables are reported. So it is extremely difficult to look at a percent of collections in establishing to, to use that as a, a way to establish practice value. But it is interesting to see what your what your averages are. Yeah, and it's, it's quick, right? It's easy. I know my last year's collections and I can do basic multiplication. Therefore, that's the quickest and easiest way for most people to wrap their head around the, uh, the average practice value. Now, I tell dentists the key word in that answer is not the number, it's the word average. Right? Average is, <laughs> that can hide all kinds of sins and, and uh, numerical fallacies. One of my favorite books I read, it's actually a, a recommendation from Bill Gates of all people. Very thin book, it's like uh, 60 pages, very readable, lots of pictures. Uh, it's called How to Lie with Statistics, L-I-E, How to mm -hmm. Lie with Statistics. And, and my wow. joke with dentists is, all right, average, average facts value 76.83%. And this is, you know, today, and it can change and go up down. Um, that means that about half the dental practices in the U.S. sold for more than that number and about half sold for less than that number. But here's the problem. As you know, Bob, every dentist thinks they're above average. They're an above average driver. They're better, better looking than the other, the other dentists in their town. They're way better at, you know, pain-free uh, shots and their, their margins don't look, you know, nearly <laughs> half as bad as the dentist down the street. And so of course their dental practice is worth at least the average, if not more, right? This is the Lake Wobegon effect, they call it. And so mm -hmm. um, anyway, so, you know, you gotta be careful with averages and, um, you know, I think it's a it's a good if you're sitting down, for example, with your financial advisor, you're a dentist in your mid 40s and you're projecting out 20 years from now when you could retire, maybe then sure. Use this number, you know, 75 percent times last year's collections. Great, great placeholder. But if you really want to know the value of your practice, that, that number is basically meaningless. It gives you a ballpark sense. But in order to get the specific number of your practice, you got to dig a little deeper. Absolutely. I like the quote you just uh, made. The number is basically meaningless. I'm writing that down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 
Uh, hey, here's our next question. Is the rise of corporate dentistry fueling mm. the general rise in practice prices? Okay. Yeah. So let's that 76% number might be a little high relative to what people have heard, right? I've, I've heard 67, I've heard 70, I've heard 72. And, and my data is my data, right? I'm not a, a, a scientifically, you know, peer reviewed published uh, data set, right? So who knows whose number is right? Um, I feel like I've got a pretty good handle on it, but I, you know, my number could be wrong. And that number is probably higher than you know this year than it was in 2015 or 2010 or certainly you know 20 years ago. And and your question is, well, it says, is it all DSOs? Are they the ones bumping the prices up? And and the answer to that again is is more subtle than a yes no, but I'll say partially yes. Right, this is basic economics. Supply and demand, picture you know, big econ 101 course with the, the two curves, supply curve, demand curve. Anytime there are more buyers in a market, more demand raises prices. And so if there are DSOs shopping in a specific area uh, or your town or your state, then you, know, you are going to see prices gradually over time start to come up. But I would not say that DSOs are solely responsible for fueling a general rise in practice prices uh, because there are, there are more factors at play. Uh, one would be that, that um, in general, you're seeing more dentists. I, you know, and again, I'd be curious your opinion on this, Bob. I think dentists in general are becoming savvier business owners. And so their practices, again, generally speaking, are more profitable. And that profitability can drive higher prices. Another big factor that we're going to talk about, I'm sure, uh, are the role of banks. Uh, but banks are lending more money to dentists, right? They're very safe loan in general. And you know, if banks are willing to lend more, then you're going to see prices go up as well. So I, I would say, yes, corporate dentistry plays a role. But it is not the sole reason that uh, practice prices are, are maybe ticking up or have generally kind of increased over time. Have you seen DSOs offering more like 80% of collections rather than 100% like they were a year or two ago, say pre-COVID? Yeah. In fact, um, a lot of DSOs are offering more than 100% last year's collections. And, and hmm. a lot of dentists get stars in their eyes and they think, oh my gosh. I cannot wait to go golf with my dentist buddies next week and tell them about the 120% that the SO offered me for my practice. Brian just said that it's the average is 76 and I just got an offer for 120. I mean, that just sounds like a no brainer, right, Bob? I mean, 120, 76. I mean, sounds <laughs> too good to be true. Exactly. <laughs> why, why wouldn't I, <laughs> why in the world would I take the 76 and not the 120? Here's the reason is because that the 120 comes with all kinds of caveats, all kinds of handcuffs, all kinds of rules. And when you do the math, as I'm sure you have many times, I've done it many times with uh, various sellers and buyers, we're you know, contemplating different offers and things. The take-home pay, once you include the handcuffs and the additional rules and some of the, the payouts and when, when that 120% gets paid, um, oftentimes, if not most of the time, is actually less than what the doctor would have seen if they would have sold to a private buyer for the average price of around 76%. So, uh, for example, uh, most DSOs require the seller to stay on 
You got to stay on for at least yep. two years. Oh, and by the way, when you stay on, you have to hit some production targets. And it's not last year's production target. It's last year's production target plus 10%. And then in the next wow. year, it's plus another 10%. And by the way, we noticed that this code, you know, we're not seeing the the, uh, the normal amount of, uh, I don't know, D2750 that we'd like to see. Uh, we'd like to see you, you know, we saw too many two and three surfaces. We'd like to see you put a few more crowns on those teeth, right? So they're not only are there some, and by the way, if you don't hit those payout targets, the 120% now becomes 100, or maybe it becomes 90, or maybe it becomes 60, or, or whatever that is, right? And so um, a lot of times people get this, those stars in their eyes because they, they hear that DSOs pay more for practices. And um, that's not necessarily true. You have to look at the details. Well, and you know, another important aspect of it is that if the dentist just continued to own their own practice for two more years and received all the profit from the practice, including the income made from hygiene, yeah. all the what we call excess earnings of the practice, they would be further ahead, as you indicated, staying on as an owner for two more years as opposed to selling to a DSO at a higher price right. with an earnout that they may or may not get because once they work for the DSO, they're going to be paid a percent of collections. They're not going to make money off hygiene or have excess earnings from the practice. Yeah, yep, exactly right. Now you mentioned uh, banks. So what role do banks have in the uh, uh, prices that practices are sold for? I think of banks like highway patrol on the freeway, all right? They are setting and enforcing the speed limits for practice prices. I, I think it would be unfair to say that banks control prices but I think it's very fair to say that banks heavily influence the average price that dental practices sell for in the United States. And so uh, here, here's what I mean. Banks have internal underwriting rules at which they will lend money to dentists. And by the way, let's just make it a quick aside. What other small business do you know of where a potential buyer can show up with zero collateral Four hundred plus thousand dollars in student loans, and no other assets other than a dental diploma on the wall, and the bank will hand them one hundred percent of the purchase price plus fifty, seventy-five, sometimes one hundred thousand dollars in working capital. You know, there there is no other industry on planet Earth where a bank will hand that collateral-free buyer, uh, you know, all the money to buy the business. You know, but the the bank. Has those has some very strict requirements under which they will lend that hundred percent of the purchase price. One of the one of the underwriting rules is that the banks have an uh, upper limit at which they will lend. Right, a lot of banks will say, "Hmm, you know, our total loan can't equal more than eighty five percent of last year's collections." And what's interesting. Um, you know, some of the major dental lenders uh, that work nationwide for a, a long time, the, the limit was, yeah, it was 80%. Then, you know, 2017, 18, 19, the, the limit started to be 85. And then a few dental lenders were going, you know, well, well our default rates aren't going up. We're going to lend up to 100% of last year's purchase price. And, and I don't know what you saw, Bob, but lo and behold, the buyers that I was working with, you'd notice the valuations start to go up right along with those banking rules 
you know, magically the valuation that said last year, the, the max this practice was worth is 85%. Now, suddenly that same practice is worth 100%. And the only factor that changed were the bank rules. And, um, you know, so the, the banks, uh, you know, again, they're kind of like highway patrol. They're saying they, they don't control the price. A buyer theoretically could say, Hey, Bob, you're selling your practice for a million. The bank says uh, they'll fund, you know, nine fifty. Here's the other $50,000. But you and I both know there aren't very many buyers that have an extra 50, dollars $150,000 in cash just laying around. Right. So the, the buyer and seller tend to be highly dependent on the banks to fund the purchase of the practice. And the banks are the ones setting and enforcing those underwriting rules. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it makes sense. And from a 50,000 foot view, it seems to me that when a buyer buys a practice, the money has to come from one of three places. It's either from cash, which usually doesn't exist, uh, or it can come the buyer's cash. It can come from the lender or it can come through seller financing. I'm credentialed with a couple of general uh, business uh, organizations, business general business brokerages, and most of their deals are SBA deals and also include seller financing. And we don't see that very often in dental practice transitions. But, you know, on some practices that are more valuable that you know, I've sold practices for around 100% of collections. And uh, some of those practices, the lenders may not fund, but they may approve a portion of that to be seller financing. And it could still be a good deal for the buyer. That's right. I, I think you're going to see more of that. In fact, let's make a prediction. Well, I don't know if you want to join on board, but I'll make a prediction on your podcast right now. June 2021, I think you and I are both going to see a lot more creative financing deals put together for dental practice sales in the next five years, um, right? Because the good practices that go for sale, the banks may say, yeah, we'll fund up to 100%. And the buyer and seller may look at each other and say, 110% is more than fair. Buyers, you know, seller saying, I'd like 120, but I'll take 110. Buyers saying, gosh, I can only afford 100. But, you know, what can we work out with this other 10%? And they're going to have a seller financing deal like you talked about or a contingent deal or, or something else. Right. And so I think you're going right. to see a lot more creative sales. Um, uh, you know, the, the structures of deals coming into place. Got it. Well, we've got a, we've got a, a few more minutes here, so we'll try to get our, our final questions in here, Brian, uh, with student loans, you know, the, uh, there are big numbers being racked up with student loans. And a lot of the associate dentists and, and the dental students are being told, you can't afford to own a practice. You need to come work for our DSO or work for our corporate dental group, uh, you know, forever because you can't, you've got a student loan. And I just, it just marvel how somebody could make 120 or 150,000 as an associate and that they're better off to work for corporate dentistry than if they owned a practice and they were making 350 a year less their bank payment. I don't know quite how that works, but uh, how can buyers afford uh, these higher prices? They can't afford not to buy a practice is the answer, right? So I flip it on its head. Mm -hmm. All right, you've got 350, four grand, 100 grand in student loans. I feel your pain. I did graduate school too and had six figures in debt, not quite as much as that, but you know, I, I understand that mentality. But the quickest way to get out from underneath student loan debt is to make some money and pay it back. 
And the quickest way to make money in dentistry is to own a good practice that puts money in your pocket. So buyers, not only should they, can they, but they should buy practices. The, the qualif qualifying word there is good. They should buy good practices. Uh, but, um, you know, they not only can they afford it, but they absolutely should because these good practices are putting, you know, they're putting a lot of money in their pockets. You know, if you can keep the hygiene, you can keep your overhead low. Um, that's absolutely the better way to go. Plus, you know, you keep control over how you practice dentistry, who you hire, who you fire. Um, you know, it's, I'll tell you why they don't think they can is fear. And I understand that and I'm sympathetic to it, but they need to get over that. Yep. At the end of the day, it's, uh, it's about uh, little green pieces of paper with pictures of dead presidents on it. That's, uh, you know, that's, it, it doesn't make any difference what, uh, somebody feels about uh, working in corporate dentistry or, or private practice if they want to be profitable, if they want to have a secure future and provide for their family. There's really only one direction to go. So I'd like to finish up with a question about, you mentioned good practices, and this kind of ties in with the last question that we were thinking about, and that was what can sellers do to get top dollar for their practices? Yeah. So I said, hey, 76% is the average. And I, I said, well, that you know, that's an average. And if you're a good practice, you can be higher than that. If you're a bad practice, not, not a bad, but below average practice, you should expect to be low. But he, here are some of the factors that you, you, Bob, I know that we've talked and you've said, I've identified a hundred different factors that can move a price up and down. I agree. Um, the maiden one is overhead. You can keep your overhead reasonable and what's reasonable. Well, somewhere around 60%, give or take, depending on practice size. But there are other things that, you know, how many active patients, clinical focus, rural versus suburban versus urban, um, out-of-date equipment versus up-to-date equipment, building type, whether or not you have transition help, if it's a fee-for-service, PPO, Medicaid mix, you know, those, all those things. So what I tell sellers is to, to know whether or not you can get a top dollar for your practice, keep your overhead around 60% or lower. Make sure your equipment isn't out of date and generally be a nice person. I think those, those three <laughs> factors, that's probably 75% of the game, wouldn't you say? Yes, those are all large factors. You know, another thing that we've seen as a result of the pandemic is that some of the dental practices have been losing key staff members, especially practices that maybe had hygienists in their 60s or, what, or you know whatever, and they just, they just retired. And so, at least in Ohio, for example, there's a big hygienist shortage. And some of the practice owners that are thinking about selling, you know, are just operating with uh, uh, temporary help at the time. And it's just very, very hard to replace them. So it seems to me key to hang on, very important to hang on to your key employees to, uh, you know, help settle the fears of the practice buyers who don't know if they're going to be able to staff the practices they're thinking about purchasing. Hey, Bob, yeah. if I could, before you end, um, I know folks have a lot of questions around practice prices. Uh, I put together a pricing guide that gives all the average numbers, but then gives the context around what makes prices go up and down. I've got trend lines. I've got, you know, price split by geography, all those different things. Uh, would it be okay if I, I mentioned where folks could get that? Oh, sure. Please do. That would be a great help. Yeah, so it's free of charge, of course. You don't need to pay anything. It's just a PDF. Uh, you go to dentaltransitioncoaching.com forward slash 
price guide. No space. So dentaltransitioncoaching.com forward slash price guide. Uh, that, uh, that resource is available for anybody that wants it. Great. Thank you, Brian. And Brian, could you share your email address and your, your number in case somebody wants to get a hold of you? Sure. Yeah. So it's uh, Brian Hanks. At, uh, in, in Hanks is like Tom Hanks and Brian spelled with an I. Uh, and my email address is Brian, B-R-I-A-N at dentalbuyeradvocates.com. And uh, my personal number, 801-304-3302. And that's Dental Buyer Advocates with an S, correct? Correct. Yep. Plural. Okay. Very good. Well, Brian, thanks so much for joining us today on this episode, and we'll look forward to uh, our next episode. My pleasure. Thank you. <music>